You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there. The hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the Northern Lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Paw Media and harness your creative side. Maybe even earn enough money. Enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher. I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert and I am joined by my co-host Tony and we are doing a recap of the Yukon Quest Alaska. There is three races that we're going to talk about, mainly diving into the Yukon Quest 550. Lots of interesting stories and drama that developed between when we hosted our last show (laughs) and now. So, Tony, let's jump right into this. It ended sometime around Wednesday or so. Brent Sass mm-hmm. claimed victory. Tell us about who won the race, and uh, then we'll jump into some stories. Who won, where they came in, then we'll jump to some stories. Sure. We'll start with the 550. Brent Sass, as you said, he won. It was no contest. He led by at least four hours the entire length of the race. Not surprising. This is Brent's race. I think he's going to dominate no matter what the mileage is on the Yukon Quest for many years to come. He really does appreciate the style of racing that the Yukon Quest thrives on. Uh, Second place was a very surprising Amanda Otto running uh, out of the Husky Homestead, Jeff King's Dogs. She, uh, she, uh, I can't wait to talk about her in a little bit. Third place was Wade Mars. Fourth place was Cody Strace. Fifth place was Nick Petit. Riley Dyche came in sixth. We had Deke in seventh and Shaney in eighth uh, as our Red Lantern. We did have one uh, musher who was withdrawn, uh, citing Rule 22, the non-competitive clause, and that was Laro Eklund. Um, We'll talk about that, I'm sure, in great detail in a little bit. But I do want to give a shout out also to the Yukon Quest 300. Matt Hall came in first. He battled much of the race uh, with Isaac Tiford out of Dallas Stevie's Kennel, who came in second. And then, of course, the uh, YQA 80, the Yukon Quest 80, uh, was Emily Robinson, that little junior phenom, the 15-year-old who is just light and fire on all of these trails and who is currently running the Willow Junior 100 as we speak. So she's just, I mean, she took on, uh, the roster had 20, 21 names on it, and she took out everybody. Yeah, it was a fun one to watch uh, develop, especially on social media. And that's really the first story because... Right when the race started, <laughs> the the website or, or Facebook page mm-hmm. somehow got hacked and was taken down pretty much right when it started, right? 
It was, yeah. Um, you know, they had built it up. We're going to have a live feed. Stick around, you know, stick with us. We'll, we'll give you all the race details. And then as you and I and everybody else were trying to log on, we realized there was new, no Yukon Quest Alaska page. Um, people started going over to the other Yukon Quest page thinking that that's where it was and getting angry with them. And uh, thank God for a local um, mushing fan. Her name is April Zook, I believe is how you say her last name. She came to the rescue. She was there at the start. She threw up a live stream on her Facebook page. She's brand new to Alaska. This was a bucket list thing for her to do. She was right there for the Yukon Quest start. She was loving it. She had no uh, history on the race or on the mushers, but she was able to talk with all of us uh, through the, the live stream and that was the only way we knew what was happening at the start. So it was it was a big save, but yes, the Yukon Quest Alaska Facebook page got hacked, it got taken down, and it popped back up, I think, a couple hours into the race, thankfully. Um, but it was one of those kind of panic moments for me, because that's the only way I know about what stories are going on. If you don't have the official social media going, you have, you're, you're completely in the dark on these races. Yeah, and as they worked their way down to the trail, of course, the stories really started to develop. And I'm looking right now on their uh, their Facebook page, and it's Yukon Quest Alaska is that Facebook page for this race. And I would love for you guys to stay tuned this evening because we're going to be hot and heavy on these podcasts. We're going to release three podcasts in a row, and one of them we're going to talk about the Yukon Quest Canada and that is an interesting one as well. And as our sometimes co-hosts mentioned, it really is a tale <laughs> of two countries. And I think that that's, mm -hmm. that's by design. We've been talking about that for the last year, how so divided this race has become. And I'm excited mm -hmm. to talk about that in another episode. So please stay tuned and subscribe. So... I'm looking on the Facebook page, and of course, Whitney McLaren, I believe, is McLaren or McLaren? I think, I think it's McLaren, but McLaren. I could be wrong. I'm the worst person to ask about how to pronounce people's names. Well, however you pronounce it, her website is <laughs> mushingphotos.com. Mm -hmm. Absolutely fa fabulous photographer. Her mm -hmm. images are all over the Facebook page, and that reason alone is a reason to head on over to that page and check it out because she truly captures the essence of a sled dog race for sure. And I'm sure you could second that being a sled dog photographer. She totally does. She brings fine art into it. Um, I feel like mine are more of a journalistic style where it's just, you know, take the pictures as facts, but she hits the lighting just perfectly in about every shot she shares. Um, she's, I, I look up to her. She's fantastic. And like you said, her pictures are amazing. There are a couple of other official photographers for the race. I don't want to butcher their names or even try to remember at this point because we're talking about so much tonight. But um, they do. They, they had a great team of photographers. They had great um, help from the different volunteers posting videos when they could because, as you know, the Yukon Quest has a lot of dead zones on both sides of the border. So uh, they had Aaron Burmeister in the Nana doing a live stream of some of the finishes if he could get service. Uh, it, it, there's, there's a wealth of video and film or photo 
footage. There we go. Say that ten times fast. Right. Um, on the on the Facebook page, it's 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 really considering how they stumbled out of the starting gate with the hacking and losing the page for a while. They really did try to make up for it, and I think overall they did a really good job of that. They did. So let's jump into this race. And I guess the second story I would like to talk about is when we were on our preview show, we said, okay, we think that this race is going to end sometime around Tuesday or Wednesday. And it did with Brent Sass coming in around that time. And then the others followed in not too short of order with uh, Shaney, is that right? Uh, coming in as the Red Lantern. Yep. So that finished up around Wednesday, and then they're having their banquet, I believe, as we speak here on Saturday night, which is a story because the uh, Canadian race starts tomorrow. So you really have to boogie if you're trying to cover, volunteer, uh, <laughs> take photographs, whatever, get all the way from Fairbanks to Whitehorse in about 12 hours I probably ask you this question and I'm not sure of the answer, but is anybody running the race tomorrow that ran in this race this week? I believe it was Brent is the only one, right? Uh, Brent's not running. Oh, he's Brent not. Brent decided okay. to, yeah, Brent said in the, uh, at the finish that this was his last race until I did a rod. Uh, the dogs won't be doing a whole lot of big runs. They'll do, a few runs just to get the energy and the wiggles out. But for the most part, they're on R&R &R until the big race. Um, and I don't think the finisher's banquet actually for the Alaska Quest is until Sunday. Oh, so Sunday. it is one of those awkward things. Yeah, it, it's a really weird. Like, we feel like there should be tonight or tomorrow should be when they're doing the awards banquet because – Asking mushers to stick around for three or four days after a race is nearly impossible. Um, I think the Iditarod can do it just because there's only two flights out every day. And so if you don't get on them, you don't get on them. But it's, it's an interesting, I don't know if they just expected the race to go slower or what the point of having that award ceremony so many days after was for, was it to keep people from doing both races? I don't know. It, it just seems like a really odd timing because normally you do it the day after the last finisher is supposed to come in. And, you know, from a musher's perspective, and this is not for these big time races, but typically for the much smaller races, often the race giving organizations or RGOs as they're called can sometimes require finishers to be at the finishers banquet to get their yep. prize and i i doubt that's the case in a big time race like the yukon quest but that's kind of an interesting wrinkle in of itself if that requirement was there because i know it's not a requirement i did a rod i guess you can head home if you wanted to after you finished and wouldn't have to be at the banquet it's more of a you know it's it's a more of a uh, ceremonial type thing, if you will, especially if you're not in the money, so to speak. But I wonder if they have any clause like that. I guess that's really going down the rabbit hole there. So <laughs> let's jump into these stories, uh, Tony. The right out of the right out of the gate, <laughs> we had stories developing. Even though we lost coverage on 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 the Facebook page, the race was still going on. And I don't know exactly what the date was uh, in terms of the race schedule where 
where the the crap literally hit the fan on this <laughs> race and uh and boy did it stir up a controversy yeah there were a couple of of things that had people questioning um there was a disqualification in the 80 that happened right at the start um it actually happened the day before at the vet check uh kelsey winters who i guess was running dogs out of jesse holmes kennel uh, she got to the starting line and was disqualified due to what they called a paperwork technicality, um, which boiled down to she did not have the correct vaccination records for, I believe, five of the dogs on her team. Um, now, Jesse Holmes commented later in that week saying basically that he did not agree with the decision um, and that the vaccination records that she produced to the Alaskan side of the Yukon Quest was the same records, were the same records that he used to run the Copper Basin 300. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs. Uh, we only know what the race has told us and what others have said, you know, as, as a response. But my, this is just my opinion as someone who follows the races, as someone who watches the races, not every race has the same requirements. And we know that. Everyone knows that. The Iditarod has different requirements than the Yukon Quest. The Yukon Quest has different requirements than the Willow 300. The Willow 300 has different requirements than the Copper Basin. It all shakes out differently. So the fact that she was told a day or two before the race that, hey, you need to produce these other records, and she wasn't able to because she's running somebody else's dogs, I, I can understand the frustration. I'm sure she was disappointed. I know that it probably felt like it could have been taken care of differently. Um, but I don't think just sitting there going, well, the Copper Basin let me run with it. Um, is is a good enough excuse, especially when you're talking about different mushers, different races, and that sort of thing. If I could comment on that just a little bit from a musher's perspective, sure. yeah, all the races have their own specific requirements. But what we t we have a, a very large three-ring binder that we have all of the dogs that we have in the kennel, and they have all the shot records, the rabies, you know, the 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 typical vaccines, mm -hmm. all that. And we haul that book around to every race that we go to. And when I heard that comment, in particular from Jesse, when he said that this is the same records that we had in the Copper Basin just a, a week or two before, I, I questioned what other records there are because really all that mm -hmm. they're requiring is the shot records and in particular the rabies records. So I don't see how there's a different record in the copper than there would be for the Yukon mm -hmm. Quest, unless by chance one of the dogs that ran in the uh, in the Copper Basin happened to expire, which is possible. Right. Happened to expire right. between the the Copper Basin and the Yukon Quest. I guess that could happen, but I just don't know what other paperwork. Uh, should have been required or was not in order. That's a, a very interesting one. And and we could definitely talk an entire show about that, but that really set the tone <laughs> for this race. And the next story, oh my goodness, we had dads involved. <laughs> we had race officials from back in the day. 
We had people on the Canadian side commenting. We had mushers commenting. We had attaboys and you did great jobs and hold your head up and the whole nine yards. It was a, um, it was a spectacle, wasn't it? What was that story? Yeah, so Laro Eklund was withdrawn from the race as he was coming inbound on the basically the second half of the race. Um, he had come into the checkpoint of Central. It was the second time the team had been through there, so the inbound um, direction. And it was really weird because he was celebrated that night on the Yukon Quest Alaska Facebook page saying that all the dogs look great. He looks great. He's in great spirits. They even mentioned that, you know, any other year he would not be our Red Lantern because we would have a bigger roster. He would be middle of the pack with the schedule that he's running. He's doing a great job. Then everybody wakes up the next morning to a press release from the Yukon Quest saying that he has been withdrawn and they cite rule 22, which is known as the competitiveness uh, rule, which just about every race has. And we see races like the Iditarod uses it quite frequently. Mark Nordman's always in trouble for ending somebody's race early. Um, typically those mushers are a day behind the back of the pack. Um, they're, they're typically ones that you can tell are struggling. Um, it doesn't always happen right away in uh, races. Typically the race marshal will give a heads up to the musher being like, hey, I really need you to try and push a little bit further. I'm looking at your dogs. I can see that they're they're capable of it. Go, you know, they they try to be encouraging, but it's like, I, I have to be able to clean out these checkpoints or, or whatever. And that's really where that rule comes into so that you're not basically having volunteers and staff sitting there twiddling their thumbs for days while a musher is on what they call a camping trip. Um, so that's not necessarily where the oddity happened. The oddity was, other than the fact that social media people didn't get the memo that, hey, we're not happy with how he's running. He was only about seven, six to seven hours, depending on whose math you do. He was a, averaging about six to seven hours behind Shaney, who was the next slowest team. And that in most situations does not qualify someone to be withdrawn, especially since I'm just going to throw this out here now while I'm thinking about it. Shaney was running about that same, once she was the Red Lantern, she was running about that same gap um, for part of the race. So the big blow up um, that happened, happened really quickly. Lots of fans jumped on, very disappointed. That's normal, that we see all the time. What we don't normally see is how many mushers jumped on and ripped into this decision. And a lot of them were mushers that had just come off of the 300 race. They had seen, they had been running with him most of the race. They knew that his team looked great. They knew that his schedule was a strong one and one that in any other year wouldn't have even been questioned. So it, it's definitely brought some probably unwanted attention to this race. 
Yeah, uh, it, it, it really it really did bring some attention. And I guess there's there's a couple of ways to think about this. And we've talked a lot about this on our coverage throughout the years, in particular on, on Iditarod, when we talk about the Iditarod machine. And you alluded to it a little bit there, Tony, where the, the folks that are manning the checkpoints often cannot stay there forever. They have to pack up and move on down the trail. And in Iditarod, it's a little bit more difficult than in this year's quest, since a good portion of this year's race was accessible by road. And I don't know exactly mm -hmm. where this happened, and, and you can clarify that in just a second. But I would imagine, and, and a lot of the comments said, it was because simply because of the logistics of putting on the race. They didn't have the vet. They didn't have the volunteers. They didn't have the people that were required to be there for a, uh, you know, a slower running team compared to the other guys and gals on the trail. And when you and I were talking, I don't know if we said this on Twitter or on Messenger or whatever, I equated it similar to if you're going to a restaurant right before closing. And while they're still open and they're going to uh, greet you with open arms, they're going to sit you at the table. You can order a fine steak and a bottle of wine and sit down and enjoy it. The cooks and the waiters and the front of the house stuff, they're sitting there tapping on, on their watches and vacuuming the floors and the whole nine yards because they know that if you're there at 945 for a 10 o'clock uh, closing at this restaurant, they're going to close at 10 o'clock whether you're happy or not, no matter how much you're paying for that meal or how good of a client you are at this restaurant. They know that, it, that they have other things to do. I equate it to that. I don't equate it to Lauro um, necessarily running too slow of a race or being in the wrong position or whatever. I simply think that the that the machine at the at the checkpoint he was out was ready to close up shop and move down the trail. I have not looked at any other comments since then, but is that sort of the take of where we're at now, or did it go even further? You know, it it did kind of. I mean, you had some people saying maybe it was because they were concerned about not so much where he was at. But the checkpoint that he was headed towards, which was mile 101, which sits between the famed uh, Eagle Summit and Rosebud, the two big mountains that they had to cross twice this year uh, in the 550. And that made the most sense to me was, you know, mile 101 is the one that has the least amount of um, technology. It's kind of just out there, there no comms really or anything like that it's pretty much what it what mushing used to be in these races where you didn't have a lot of communication outside of i think they use a sat phone to get word in and out um and so they were concerned that if he did have trouble which to me sounds like it was a really big if with how his team was looking and how he was able to progress because this is his backyard um it sounds i mean that seems the most plausible there were a lot of other comments though i think that drowned out that type of 
conversation and it was more people were upset with the race marshal themselves. Um, there were some accusations that I don't feel like we need to dive into all of them. If, if you want to see it, go look up the, the press release on the Yukon Quest Alaska page, get you, get you a nice mug of tea and, and sit back maybe with some popcorn because it, it can be kind of entertaining to, to watch that kind of drama um, and form your own opinion. Um, but my biggest concern personally is the fact that there didn't seem to be a lot of communication to the musher ahead of time. In all of the other races, the musher knows it's coming. And Laro said in a statement on his own Facebook page after the race that he was not given a heads up that this was a possibility at that point. He had run 300 miles into the race. Um, yes, he was behind, but everyone that he was talking to said he was running a really solid race. There was nothing about a race marshal being upset with where he was or needing him to go faster. And that, for me, as, as everybody knows, communication is key for me. It's my big pet peeve. It's one thing not to communicate to the fans and those of us back home. It's another thing not to communicate to the musher the way that they're used to. And again, this is not something new. This is how these races have run for decades. And so it's not like we're asking for a big slice of chocolate cake. We're asking for just the bare minimum, the bread and water, the, the base of how these races are run. Uh, another thought on that, and I think a, a prevailing comment from a lot of folks, mushers in particular, or uh, future mushers to this race, they mm -hmm. would say, man, you guys really shot yourself in the foot. Why in the world would somebody that's just getting involved with distance mushing want to go down this path? You know, it, it, it is exactly. a changed race from it, as it was just a few years ago. People are blowing mm -hmm. up the trail, uh, you know, in Iditarod and the Quest, it's a much, much faster race than it was a half a decade ago. So mm -hmm. the prevailing comment is, why in the world would I be interested in running in something like this? And I know I'm a slower musher. I'm getting involved in this sport. And I know I need to take my time. I'm not Brent Sass. I'm not Dallas Seavey. I'm not mm -hmm. Jesse Holmes. I'm not whoever, you know, name of names in the sport who just kind of just blares blair, up the trail that's that's the interesting part. But my last point, yeah. and then I'm going to end this with uh, or end this segment <laughs> with one final question to you is. What happens, you know, what what's going to happen next is is it's going to be interesting because races are going down this route and, and it's it is because they're going so much faster. But when does this when is there a happy medium in Iditarod or in the quest, if we know that these guys in the front are just blazing and then we have all these other folks mid to back, just sort of, mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're doing their best, but they're definitely slower than the front runners. Is this a, is this a new excuse to keep the race fast to, you know, to say if you're not, and, and the, and the rule says, if you're not so many hours and, you know, in, within mm -hmm. that front runner, I, I think it's, 36 hours or 18 hours or something like that. That's tough to do to say, to say that everybody in the race, even though if it's a nine person race or whatever, 
for everybody to keep up with the front runner. Right. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, there was that string uh, in Iditarod just recently here when Dallas and Mitch kept trading off winning. They were breaking the record every year that had been held previously for over 10 years by Martin Boozer, who blew away the the previous record by days, and they were doing the same thing. It's kind of hard to even write up a schedule that'll keep you, you know, if everything goes right, you can stay on the schedule, that'll keep you within a certain time frame. So even bringing that into the rules, instead of it being a complete judgment call by a race marshal, gets a little bit difficult. You know, there was a big conversation that I would love to uh, extrapolate on in one of our bi-weeklies where there's this dichotomy of um, of just not just financial budget but time budget you know you have the Dallas CVs the Brent Sasses there's one how or they've gotten their sponsors by winning but they also had sponsorship before they were even big time you know Brent had family and friends that really helped him get started. Dallas Seavey, of course, comes from a long legacy of mushers, but he went out and got himself a sponsor when he was a teenager. So, you know, it's it's different than you have, you know, yourself or some of these other mushers who are running who they don't have a sponsor and they have to work a full-time job so that they can afford to feed themselves and, of course, their dogs. And so they're not able to run these big training programs that Brent does, that Dallas does. Brent has several handlers during the winter season. Dallas, of course, he has his touring business. He has, I don't even know how many handlers this year, but there are quite a few running his dogs. Uh, it's, it's a very big difference. And so someone like a Brent isn't going to have to worry about as much as Laro is trying to get everything accomplished and keep his head above water, at least tread water. And so I think we're probably, as much as I hate saying it, because gosh darn it, I used to fight the idea when Danny and I would talk about it, um, but I do think that we're going to start looking towards these races having either very, very small rosters, which we're seeing in Race to the Sky this year, the, the Yukon Canada uh, Yukon Quest Canada, however they're calling it, they're calling themselves just the Yukon Quest, um, but their roster is ridiculously small, smaller than Yukon Quest Alaska. It's one of these things where if you don't want these teeny tiny rosters where it just feels like you're pissing away money as a race organization, then you're going to have to look into something like a Pro-Am where you have those that have the money and the star power and the speed and they go and they go for the big prizes and then you have the others that would be your middle to the back of the pack and they're running their own race that isn't as big and shiny. And I, I hate to say it because I think that takes away some of what the Quest and Iditarod are, but at the same time, when you do have that giant discrepancy, there's gotta be, there has to be that happy medium and either you do what uh, the Yukon Quest over in Canada wants to do, which is basically force people to have all of this mandatory rest that really doesn't help their team necessarily and creates almost a stage stop so that everybody has that equal footing or, or you go to something like a program. 
Boy, there's a lot to unpack here. And I want to just, I want to, I want to compare this just a little bit to other pro sports. Just in this last week, in, in two of the largest pro sports in, in America, uh, the NBA and the NFL. Um, first one up is LeBron James just beat out the scoring record, the point record that, that was held for many years over Kareem Abdul Jabbar. And, uh, fans of LeBron say he's the greatest of all time. He is the best that's ever played the game. And then we think about back in the day with Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan getting six uh, uh, championships and never losing in the championship and all of this. And it's interesting to see how the difference between yesterday to today in the NBA with LeBron versus Jordan. And then in the NFL, which happens to be the Super Bowl this weekend, <laughs> we have Patrick Mahomes, who arguably is one of the greatest quarterbacks in the game for many reasons. Mm -hmm. And then we have, from back in the day, Joe Montana of yours and Michelle's fame of the 49ers. And he also played for the Chiefs as well. He is not mm -hmm. so much a Patrick Mahomes fan. And he is claiming that he is not one of the best to ever play the game. So it really is yesterday versus today. And I say all that is because when you're thinking about sports, whether it's Iditarod or NBA or NFL or NASCAR or whatever, you always learn from the people that came before you, but it's always a much different game, race, whatever, than it was before. And I think we're really seeing that with these bigger races. I did a rod in Quest and Bear Grease and Race to the Sky and all those ones that we tend to spend a lot of time on on these shows. You know, we've done a lot of, of recaps and previews this year, but our longest recaps and previews have been these big time races. When we talked about the Bear Grease and the Willow 300 and now the Yukon Quest Alaska side, because there is such a rich history and big names that run these, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. So, Tony, you did already answer my question is, what do you think is going to happen? And you said you think it's going to be a, a pro-am type deal. And I know my old co-host, Alex, and I talked about that many times over the years with Iditarod. And I think that that's where this is headed. So we cannot end this episode without mentioning Amanda Otto, who came in second place. What happened with Amanda before we hit end. Amanda smoked the competition in that last leg. When she left Two Rivers, I believe she was in fifth place, fifth or sixth. She was close to the bottom. And um, a lot of it did have to do with the fact that those ahead of her, especially Wade Mars and Nick Petit, they had some trouble along the way, so they slowed way down. Nick Petit actually had to have a couple of camping um, turns. His dogs just decided they wanted to rest. They didn't want to race anymore. And uh, so Amanda took a gamble, and she ran from Two Rivers to Nanana in one fell swoop, which was about 100 miles, which is a very long leg to do without any sort of stop. It's possible. We've seen them do it. Um, but still, I mean, she's running on river that we knew how to overflow. 
Um, and it was just, it was one of those things she trusted that her dogs could do it. She knew that she wanted to try and get up there in the standings a little bit. I don't know that she knew exactly what was happening in front of her. I think she just wanted to make good time. And uh, she got in an Anana, and the only team in there was Brent Sass. He wasn't even able to leave yet off, off of his six-hour mandatory rest. So she got in there. Wade Mars was a couple hours behind her in third. And she just got smooth sailing all the way to the finish to come in second. Jeff King told uh, KUAC Radio that she could potentially be a top runner and champion of Iditarod in the future. He has that much faith in her. Uh, he's allowing her to run his dogs, his big team, his A team, in all of these races. Of course, he's trying to retire, which makes complete sense. Um, but for him to hand the reins over to someone else and to have such high praise, I just wanted to give her a shout out. She was unable to run the Copper Basin 300. She was the musher that hit a caribou on the way down and uh, couldn't get a ride to to the Copper Basin to Glen Allen. So for her to come back and have this kind of fairy tale ending for this race, I'm just super excited for her. She has the Iditarod up next, I believe. So uh, it, it'll be fun to watch. I think I think we need to start paying attention to Amanda Otto of Husky Homestead. I like it. And I, I guess that begs the question. I know we talked about in our preview show, you had said that Jeff King was going to provide some commentary uh, during this race. He was going to be the impromptu reporter on the trail, if you will, uh, for the race. Mm -hmm. Did he do that or was he just doing his own stuff with his own team? Uh, I feel like he did a good job of both. If he was one of the ones, there was some analysis from someone going on on the Facebook page. I don't know if it was Jeff. I know that that was originally the plan. I don't know if that happened, especially after the hacking, you know, and maybe they didn't want somebody to accidentally hit delete again. I don't know. Um, but that was the original plan. Uh, I, I liked the commentary both on the Yukon Quest Alaska page, but Jeff's Jeff had some some fun stuff that he added as well to his own Facebook page. So if you find Jeff King on Facebook, you will not be disappointed. Well, there you have it, guys. A very in-depth race recap here on Mushing Radio. I appreciate the time tonight. And uh, stay tuned because... That feed is going to populate in just a few minutes if you are listening to this show. And our next show we're going to mention is the Goose Bay 150. And then shortly there following, we're going to burn the midnight oil, as they say. And we're going to talk about the other Yukon Quest here tonight as well. So if it's late on your end, stay up with us or check us out on your feed tomorrow. So on behalf of my co-host, this is Robert for Mushing Radio. We'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. From DogWorks Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. 
If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe too. Your host is Robert Forto. Our producers are Michelle Forto, Alex Stein, and Tony Ryder. Our executive producer is Robert Forto. Created for DogWorks Radio and First Paw Media.